Welcome! You are listening to Audio from the Table. If you'd like to learn more about our community or donate to this ministry, please visit thetabletx.com. All right, so I get the honor and privilege of um, welcoming our speaker um, up here. And it's really funny because Denise has been, as those of us who know her, I mean, it's just kind of like an extension of the family. So there's not really a lot I can share because she's she's just always been very welcoming to us, um, obviously with, you know, the space that we have, um, inviting us to some of you know, her church's um, specific ceremonies and services and things like that, opening doors for us, things like that. And so it's not really, so for those of us who kind of know her, we kind of know Denise. She's, she's spoken and shared with us before. So I started thinking, I was like, what can I share about Denise, really? And I started thinking, I was like, wait a second, do we do have visitors? <laughs> so for, specifically for our visitors, I know that sometimes walking through a door into a church space is kind of nerve-wracking, um, especially if there are any of us, which is probably a lot of us in the room, who any kind of survived any type of church trauma, there's always a little bit of like, I'm not sure who I can let in. I don't know how much I can trust. I don't know if I can be myself here or be vulnerable. Denise is not one of those people. Denise is amazing. She has one of the most gentle, most loving hearts I mean, I love her to pieces. Um, so she is a great person, and you can most definitely trust her. So for that being said, welcome to these. We can't wait to hear from you. Thank you. Thank you, Don. I'm so thrilled. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm always thrilled to come here and speak. It's just, it's such a joy, such an honor. And I'll tell you that last week, Brett came and sp- spoke at my church, and he gave a knock-it-out-of-the-ballpark sermon, so I feel a lot of pressure tonight. So <laughs> he was fantastic. I hope you all know how great he is. He is just so great. Um, and my congregation loves him, and I'm just, I think we just have sort of a, sort of a mutual love thing between um, all of us, so I'm really glad to be here. Thank you. The scripture that I've chosen for tonight is taken from 1 Corinthians. It is chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Hear now these words. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolishness the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, God decided through the foolishness of our proclamation to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks desire wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. This is God's word for us today. Thanks be to God. Would you pray for me? I'll pray with me and pray for me too. (laughs) 
Come, Holy Spirit. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So many of you may not know, but I'm a mother of five children, um, grandmother to ten. And when my, our three oldest children were little, we spread them way out, but when our three oldest were little, um, my husband Mike worked for American Airlines. So one day, he, he was working in finance, but anyway, our son Nicholas was out playing in the yard, and the neighbor's son came over, and suddenly Nicholas came running into the house, and he said, Mom, what does Daddy do at work? I said, well, he helps run the finances of the company. Well, Nick looked a little confused, but frankly, he didn't really know what Mike did, and I really didn't know what Mike did either. So I said, it means he makes sure that the planes can keep flying, that there's enough money to pay the pilots and the flight attendants and everybody that works for the company. Oh, okay, said Nick. And he ran outside, and he came back in pretty quick. And I asked him, what happened? Where's your friend? Oh, he went home. Why? Well, he was mad. Why? Well, he told me his daddy was a pilot, and I told him that my dad was probably his dad's boss. <laughs> so he went home. My dad's better than your dad. <laughs> Although he was just a child, I think we're all looking for that little something, aren't we, that gives us power over somebody else. Something that puts us just slightly above some, another person. In our country, we talk about the American dream. If you just work hard enough, well, you can just achieve anything. What we mean by that, though, is that you can become wealthy, and with wealth comes power. We live in a world that's obsessed with power and wealth. Ask any child what they want to be when they grow up, and when they're little, they'll say Batman or Superman. Now, when my granddaughter Violet was about four, she said she wanted to be either a princess or Darth Vader. I said, well, Violet, why a princess or Darth Vader? And she said, well, princesses are pretty, and they can get people to do whatever they want them to do. She said, Darth Vader isn't pretty, but he makes everyone do what, they want, what he wants them to do. Now, you can tell by that that Violet is a middle child. <laughs> Power is something that everyone seems to covet, don't we? So much so that the magazine Forbes releases a list every couple of years of the most powerful people in the world. Since it's kind of difficult to quantify power, well, the editors explain that they compile the list taking four criteria into consideration. Does the person have influence over a lot of other people? Does the person have control of relatively large financial resources in comparison to their peers? Is the person powerful in multi-spheres? I'm sorry, in multiple spheres. And in other words, do they have power in more than one area? And lastly, does the person actively use their power? Well, I'm sure you won't be shocked to wonder, well, you might wonder how many people are on the list. There's 75 people out of, um, but in 2018, there was only slots for about 60. And who was on that list? Well, I'm sure you can guess. Xi Jinping, the, liner, uh, the leader of China, and I probably pronounced his name wrong, but that's okay, Vladimir Putin, and former President Donald Trump of the U.S., and Jeff Bezos of Amazon. There's nearly 7.5 billion humans on planet Earth, state the editors at Forbes, but these 60 men and women 
make the world turn. See, the old adage says that money makes the world go around, but the truth is it's power that makes the world go round. Money is just as a necessary vehicle for gaining power. And power is necessary in this life. Those who study these kind of things say that the human desire for power is rooted in self-preservation. No one person or nation wants to be last in the pecking order, right? Because if you're last, well, you're probably not gonna live very long. If you do manage to survive, well, probably will be somebody else's servant or slave or whipping boy. We all want to climb up in the pecking order because the higher we go, the better our chances you see are for survival. And the higher we go, boy, the more freedom we have. Freedom to do what we want, to make life easier for ourselves or those we care about. Freedom to live life on our terms, to, to have control over our own destiny. We all want power, don't we? But how do we get it? Well, power is only power if somebody else recognizes it, right? If we want to have power, all we, we have to prove it in some way, that we are powerful. So the U.S. proved that in World War II with the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Joseph Stalin proved it in the USSR with the killing of over a million dissidents, what was known as the Great Terror. On a lesser scale, well, power is proven every day in our lives by those who employ us, they can fire us, or if we don't comply, by our government, if we don't pay our taxes, we can go to jail, and even by parents, do what I say or else. Power is only power if it's backed up by something, some kind of consequences, strength. It's the way the world works, right? Like it or not. But into this truth, which we all acknowledge, explodes this paradoxical message of the cross. A message which I gotta say for a lot of us has lost its meaning. There are very few places we can go in this world today that we won't see a cross somewhere, right? Every church has a cross. We've got tons of them here, usually outside and inside. We focus on the cross as a symbol of our faith during worship. We make the sign of the cross sometimes to remember our baptism. We sing happy songs about the cross. At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight, and now I'm happy all the day. Cross jewelry is everywhere. Crucifixes that depict Christ dying an agonizing death. Beautiful filigreed gold and silver necklaces. Cross earrings, bracelets, and even cross toe rings. We see cross tattoos cross t-shirts, crosses on leather jackets, and even bejeweled crosses on the back pocket of jeans. We decorate our houses with pretty little crosses. We have cross-shaped pinatas. We use, see designers using crosses in their clothing lines. For both the religious and the non-religious, well, the cross has become kind of a fashion statement of some um, some, some sort. It's everywhere. It's on everyone. It's every, in, in everything. We're so used to it that when we hear the words of St. Paul in our lesson for today, we're at best just a little bit confused. 
The message about the cross is a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles? How is the cross a stumbling block for anyone? How is it foolishness? To understand what Paul is really saying here, we have to go back over 2,000 years ago, it's about to the time of the Roman Empire. This is an empire that is founded on the cultural value of honor. Honor was everything. So much so that an honorable death was far better than a dishonorable life. This is the culture that introduced crucifixion to the world. A form of execution that was intended to inflict the optimal amount of pain on the, inf uh, uh, on the offender. But more important, it was designed to degrade and humiliate the offender, to shame them. This form of execution was considered to be the, the ultimate, the, the supreme Roman punishment reserved for the worst of the worst. It was considered so dishonorable that the average Roman citizen avoided even talking about it. It was considered so beneath a person of honor that even Cicero, a Roman philosopher and politician who lived just before the time of Jesus, said that the very word cross should be far removed, not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but from his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears. The very mention of crucifixion is unworthy of a Roman citizen and a free man. The practice was so distasteful that the, the word, the very word crucify, was considered to be a vulgar word. Ancient documents describe a prostitute who was tried for swearing at one of her patrons, and the word she used was, go get yourself crucified. We have a modern equivalent of that, don't we? It was dishonorable, and it was extremely effective. The famous teacher and writer Quintilian described the purpose behind the practice when he said, when we crucify criminals, the most frequented roads of the conquered lands are chosen, where the greatest number of people can look at and be seized by fear. For every punishment has less to do with the offense than with the example. The condemned would be forced to carry a rough hewn beam, beam of wood as they walked down the road. There, the powerless people would, would either cower in fear or cheer as the condemned struggled by. They would taunt them. They would throw things at them. They would spit on them, giddy with the knowledge that they weren't on the lowest rung of society. Giddy with the knowledge that they had escaped such a fate. When the condemned reached the execution site, well, the beam would be attached to a post or even a tree where then they would be hung, arms outstretched, sometimes for days, until they died an excruciating death, usually of asphyxiation. It was horrific. It was an image of great shame, an unnoble death. A symbol of contempt, proof of conquered nations of just who was in charge, proof to conquered nations of just who was in charge. It was a terrifying reminder of how impotent they were in the face of the great and mighty Roman Empire. 
See, for people of the time, using the cross as a symbol of faith, well, it would have been like African Americans in the deep south in the, of the early 20th century placing a beautifully woven noose at the front of their churches. Or like the Jews of 1940s Poland placing a miniature golden gas chamber around their necks as jewelry. It's unimaginable, isn't it? Yet it is this symbol, the, this message of the cross that St. Paul says, this is where we find the power of God. No, we want to shout, no, the power of God is in the empty tomb. It is not in the cross. But St. Paul says, Jews demand signs and Greeks desire wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified. Although we often use the word Christ as Jesus' last name, Christ is not a name, it is who he was. It is the Greek word for Messiah, for the anointed one, for king. Paul is telling us that the good news we proclaim is that this man, Jesus, is the Christ, the Messiah, the promised king who has come to bring about God's kingdom, God in the flesh. And this God king has died on a Roman cross, executed in torturous pain and shame and oppression in utter weakness. And this message of weakness, of powerlessness, of defeat is where we find God's power. How in the world does this make any sense? God looks foolish, Paul says. Yet in this foolishness, we find great wisdom. God is weak. Yet it is only in this weakness that we find power. No wonder the Jews couldn't stomach it. They couldn't get past it. No wonder the Gentiles thought it was absolutely crazy. Because it's shocking, really, isn't it? It turns everything we think we know upside down. God brings about salvation for the world through a crucified Christ. God, the creator of all that is, seen and unseen, rescues humanity and all of creation from sin and death through the execution of a humble and nondescript king on a Roman cross. It's shocking that in this one act, God defeats our greatest enemies, our greed, our pride, our selfishness, all those things that push us to hurt others and harm creation. Jesus overcomes the sin and death by bearing the brunt of our sin and giving himself up to death. You see, it's as if Jesus on the cross absorbs into himself all the hatred, all the violence, all the guilt, all the shame, the pain, the suffering, all that humans can inflict on one another. He absorbs it all. Instead of fighting violence with violence, instead of fighting power with power like everyone expected a king to do or even a god to do, Jesus just absorbs it. He takes on the shame and humiliation of 
all who are outcasts, all who believe they're unworthy, all who are powerless, and in doing so shows us that God is on the side of the shamed, not the shamers, of the humiliated and the isolated, not the bullies or the powerful. In this act, you see, Jesus shows us who God really is. God is the God who would rather die than kill, who would rather love than condemn. The God who would rather suffer by our hands than impose his will on us. Jesus shows us that God is a God who answers violence and hate with radical forgiveness and unending mercy. A God that takes on our sin, who suffers for us, who suffers with us, and a God who will never abandon us. God's wisdom is revealed, not in power but in weakness, not in glory, but in suffering, not in hatred and violence, but in love and peace. And for those of us who are being saved, God's power is found, St. Paul says, in this one act. It's a really shocking message, isn't it? But my friends, it's good news. It's good news for those of us who live in this world, for those of us who live with the power of, 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 of force and intimidation, for those, those of us whom the world seems to have left behind, for those of us who suffer or grieve or somehow just don't measure up in the eyes of the world. It's good news for those of us who are racked with guilt this evening those who are overcome by shame for something we have done, because you see this, the message of the cross says God is not standing over us, condemning us. God is standing before us with arms wide open, ready to forgive, ready to welcome us home. And that's really good news for those of us who have felt abandoned by God. For those of us who think that God only works in God moments, those times when something spectacular happens, something miraculous, something extraordinary, because the cross, you see, shows us that God also works when tragedy strikes, when the worst things we imagine can happen, when pain and suffering and despair and even death hits us. These moments can sometimes be the most powerful God moments as God comes alongside us and walks with us through darkness and disaster. See, the, the cross shows us that God is not unmoved by the ebb and flow of human circumstances and human experiences. God is not oblivious to our hurt. God is right there in the midst of it, ready to walk with us through it, to give us just what we need day by day to make it through. It's good news, you see, because the cross shows us that when God seems silent, silent, when all things seem to be lost, well, that's the time that God is doing God's best work. The message of the cross is where we find God's power. It's the place we find God's wisdom. It is in this cross that we place our hope, our faith, because this cross, you see, is where we find the heart of God. In this cross, we find unending love. 
love beyond all measure. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. My friends, I have been given the great honor of presiding over Holy Communion tonight. Um, we have much the same... I'm going to put this over here. We have much the same... Um, understanding of communion in the United Methodist Church. We serve an open table. Anyone is welcome. No matter who you are, no matter where you have come from, no matter where you're going, this is a place for you because this table does not belong to any one church. This table is the, is the table of Jesus Christ. And the one who died on the cross for us welcomes all, all to come. I have a liturgy that we do, um, and I'm going to a lot of it is reading, um, but some of it will be on the screens, and you can just follow along with, with me. There's a part in here where I'm going to sing, and it's going to sound intimidating, but that's okay. Just sing back exactly what I sing to you. <laughs> there's, there's nothing magical about it. So we start with our invitation, and then we do a confession and a pardon. So my friends, Christ our Lord invites to his table all who love him who earnestly repent of their sin and seek to live in peace with one another. Therefore, let us confess our sins before God and before one another. Merciful God, we confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have failed to be an obedient church. We have not done your will. We have broken your law. We have rebelled against your love. We have not loved our neighbors and we have not heard the cry of the needy. Forgive us, we pray. Free us for joyful obedience through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. My friends, hear the good news. Christ died while we were yet sinners. That proves God's love towards us. In the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. Glory to God. Amen. In my church, we now do what we call sharing of the peace, and I thought it would, might be nice. We, as I always tell my church, um, it's not greet and meet. It's peace of Christ be with you. We're told to come to the table with no, uh, no enmity between us. And sharing the peace is that way of saying, I don't care what happened before. In this moment, let there be peace between us. Let Christ be the space between you and me. So the peace of the Lord be with you and also with you. You can take a moment to just say peace of the Lord with people right around you. Peace of Christ be with you. Peace of Christ be with you. Amen. So the Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right and a good and joyful thing always and everywhere to give thanks to you, almighty God, creator of heaven and earth. And so with your people on earth and all the company of heaven, we praise your name and join in their unending hymn. Holy, holy, holy Lord, holy, holy Lord, God 
God of power and might, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. You did well. Holy are you, O God, and blessed is your Son, Jesus Christ. By the baptism of his suffering, death, and resurrection, you gave birth to your church. You delivered us from slavery to sin and death and made with us a new covenant by water and the Spirit. On the night in which he gave himself up for us, our Lord took bread. He gave thanks to you, O God. He broke the bread gave it to his disciples and said, take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And when the supper was over, he took the cup. He gave thanks to you, gave it to his disciples and said, drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so in remembrance of these, your mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we offer ourselves, O God, in praise and thanksgiving as a holy and living sacrifice in union with Christ's offering for us as we proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and wine. Make them be for us the body and blood of Christ, that we may be for the world the body of Christ, redeemed by his blood. By your Spirit, make us one with Christ, one with each other, and one in ministry to all the world until Christ comes in final victory and we feast at his heavenly banquet. Through your Son, Jesus Christ, with the Holy Spirit in your holy church, all honor and glory is yours, almighty God, now and forever. Amen, amen. Now, with the confidence of children of God, let us pray together the prayer our Lord taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. My friends, since there is one loaf, we who are many are one. We all partake of the same loaf. And the cup over which we give thanks, it is a sharing in the blood of Christ.